Chapter Eight of Volume Three of The Mysterious Island. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne, translated by William Henry Giles Kingston. Volume Three, Chapter Eight. So the convicts were still there, watching the corral and determined to kill the settlers one after the other. There was nothing to be done but to treat them as wild beasts. But great precautions must be taken, for just now the wretches had the advantage on their side, seeing and not being seen, being able to surprise by the suddenness of their attack, yet not to be surprised themselves. Harding made arrangements, therefore, for living in the corral of which the provisions would last for a tolerable length of time. Ayrton's house had been provided with all that was necessary for existence, and the convicts, scared by the arrival of the settlers, had not had time to pillage it. It was probable, as Gideon Spilett observed, that things had occurred as follows. The six convicts, disembarking on the island, had followed the southern shore, and after having traversed the double shore of the Serpentine Peninsula, not being inclined to venture into the far west woods, they had reached the mouth of Falls River. From this point, by following the right bank of the watercourse, they would arrive at the spurs of Mount Franklin, among which they would naturally seek a retreat, and they could not have been long in discovering the corral, then uninhabited. There they had regularly installed themselves, awaiting the moment to put their abominable schemes into execution. Ayrton's arrival had surprised them, but they had managed to overpower the unfortunate man, and the rest may be easily imagined. Now the convicts, reduced to five, it's true, but well armed, were roaming the woods, and to venture there was to expose themselves to their attacks, which could be neither guarded against nor prevented. "'Wait! There is nothing else to be done,' repeated Cyrus Harding. "'When Herbert is cured, we can organize a general battle of the island, and a satisfaction of these convicts.' That will be the object of our grand expedition, at the same time. As the search for our mysterious protector, added Gideon Spilett, finishing the engineer's sentence, and it must be acknowledged, my dear Cyrus, that this time his protection was wanting at the very moment when it was most necessary to us. Who knows? replied the engineer. What do you mean? asked the reporter. That we are not at the end of our trouble yet, my dear Spilett, and that his powerful intervention may have another opportunity of exercising itself. But that is not the question now. Herbert's life before everything. This was the colonist's saddest thought. Several days passed, and the poor boy's state was happily no worse. Cold water, always kept at a suitable temperature, had completely prevented the inflammation of the wounds. It even seemed to the reporter that this water, being slightly sulphurous, which was explained by the neighbourhood of the volcano, had a more direct action on the healing. The superation was much less abundant, and thanks to the incessant care by which he was surrounded, Herbert returned to life, and his fever abated. He was besides subjected to a severe diet, and consequently his weakness was and would be extreme. But there was no want of refreshing drinks, and absolute rest was of the greatest benefit to him. Cyrus Harding, Gideon Spilett, and Pencroft had become very skilful in dressing the lad's wounds. All the linen in the house had been sacrificed. 
Herbert's wounds, covered with compresses and lint, were pressed neither too much nor too little, so as to cause their secretization without affecting any inflammatory reaction. The reporter used extreme care in the addressing, knowing well the importance of it, and repeating to his companions that which most surgeons willingly admit, that it is perhaps rarer to see a dressing well done than an operation well performed. In ten days, on the 22nd of November, Herbert was considerably better. He had begun to take some nourishment. The colour was returning to his cheeks, and his bright eyes smiled at his nurses. He talked a little, notwithstanding Pencroft's efforts, who talked incessantly to prevent him from beginning to speak, and told him the most improbable stories. Herbert had questioned him on the subject of Ayrton, whom he was astonished not to see near him, thinking that he was at the corral. But the sailor, not wishing to distress Herbert, contented himself by replying that Ayrton had rejoined Neb, so as to defend Granite House. Humph, said Pencroft, these pirates, they're gentlemen who have no right to any consideration, and the captain wanted to win them by kindness. Hal sent them some kindness, but in the shape of a good bullet. And have they not been seen again? asked Herbert. No, my boy answered the sailor, but we shall find them, and when you are cured we shall see if the cowards who strike us from behind will dare to meet us face to face. I am still very weak, my poor Pencroft. Well, your strength will return gradually. What's a ball through the chest? Nothing but a joke. I have seen many, and I don't think much of them. At last things appeared to be going on well, and if no complication occurred, Herbert's recovery might be regarded as certain but what would have been the condition of the colonists if his state had been aggravated, if, for example, the ball had remained in his body, if his arm or his leg had had to be amputated. "'No,' said Spilett more than once, "'I've never thought of such a contingency without shuddering.' "'And yet, if it had been necessary to operate,' said Harding one day to him, "'you would not have hesitated?' "'No, Cyrus,' said Gideon Spilett, but thank God that we have been spared this complication. As in so many other conjectures, the colonists had appealed to the logic of that simple good sense of which they had made use so often, and once more, thanks to their general knowledge, it had succeeded. But might not a time come when all their science would be at fault? They were alone on the island. Now men in all states of society are necessary to each other. Cyrus Harding knew this well, and sometimes he asked if some circumstance might not occur which they would be powerless to surmount. It appeared to him besides that he and his companions, till then so fortunate, had entered into an unlucky period. During the two years and a half which had elapsed since their escape from Richmond, it might be said that they had had everything their own way. The island had abundantly supplied them with minerals, vegetables, animals, and as nature had constantly loaded them, their science had known how to take advantage of what she offered them. The well-being of the colony was therefore complete. Moreover, in certain occurrences, an inexplicable influence had come to their aid. But all that could only be for a time. In short, Cyrus Harding believed that fortune had turned against them. In fact, the convict's ship had appeared in the waters of the island, and if the pirates had been, so to speak, miraculously destroyed, six of them, at least, had escaped the catastrophe. They had disembarked on the island, and it was almost impossible to get at the five who survived. 
Ayrton had no doubt been murdered by these wretches, who possessed firearms, and at the first use that they had made of them, Herbert had fallen, wounded almost mortally. Were these the first blows aimed by adverse fortune at the colonists? This was often asked by Harding. This was often repeated by the reporter, and it appeared to him also that the intervention, so strange yet so efficacious, which till then had served them so well, had now failed them. Had this mysterious being, whatever he was, whose existence could not be denied, abandoned the island? Had he in his turn succumbed? No reply was possible to these questions, but it must not be imagined that because Harding and his companions spoke of these things they were meant to despair. Far from that. They looked their situation in the face, they analysed the chances, they prepared themselves for any event, they stood firm and straight before the future, and if adversity was at last to strike them, it would find in them men prepared to struggle against it. End of chapter 8, volume 3